Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that we can gather together in freedom and learn more about your word. We do pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand better your prophecies that you have regarding the end, that we may live godly lives here and now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see everyone here. You guys look very uh, excited about spring as I am, so... It's great to be with you here. Now, last time we were in the book of Revelation, this is the last PowerPoint you will have for the study, and I announced that last time, but I think we're going to be done with it by next Sunday, so that's when we're going to be done, because today we're going to be jumping off where we'd left off last time, and if you recall, we were talking about wayward views regarding the timing of the rapture, and I gave you about five reasons why post-tribulational rapture view, why that view doesn't work. Now, today I'm going to be turning our attention to refuting the pre-wrath view and also the mid-trib view, which really go somewhat hand-in-hand. So, with that, let me just pull up my pointer and talk about the various views of the rapture. When we're talking about the rapture, let us remember that is what we believe happens at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Notice on the screen, this diagram is the last seven years. So, for those of you that may be new to the class... We're living in this time period here. So this is a timeline. This is the church age. And eventually we're going to come to a point in time known as the 70th week of Daniel. That last seven years that goes from this point to this point. And the reason I have a halfway mark is because that is a significant event. According to Daniel 9, 27, this is the period that the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel and he starts persecuting the nation of Israel That is known as the Great Tribulation, which lasts for three and a half years. So that's why I have that diagram. So when we're talking about the rapture, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to meet us in the air, to raise us from the dead, both those who are already dead as Christians and those who are still alive. The pre-trib rapture sees the event happening here at the very beginning of the 70th week. Does everyone see that on the screen? Post-trib sees it as happening here. They see the coming of Christ to establish his millennial kingdom and the rapture as one event. And again, last time I showed you five reasons why that is highly unlikely. The biggest reason is, remember, the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night while they're saying peace and safety. Well, how could you say that you have peace and safety when you've gone through the worst seven years of tribulation the world has ever seen? It's highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. What's more... Jesus talks about the days of the Son of Man are going to be like the days of Noah. Remember, when Jesus makes that reference to the days of Noah, he's not comparing it to his second coming because we in this generation are going to be as sinful as they were in the days of Noah. And by the way, don't don't miss my point. I'm not saying that we are not as sinful as that generation. That's just not Jesus' point. Okay? I I think this, this world is plenty sinful. But if Jesus' point was to talk about the sinfulness in Noah's generation, he would have mentioned their sin. But instead, he says they were eating and drinking, given in marriage. In other words, he's talking about life as it always goes. People were given in marriage. Well, marriage, is that a sin? No. So Jesus is using the days of Noah to say, just as in the days of Noah, they were completely unprepared for the coming wrath. Life had gone on as it always had. All of a sudden, wrath came. The flood came. The only warning they had was from the righteous preacher Noah. 
in the same way, the only warning the world has today is through the preaching of the word, through the scriptures. It's the only warning. There's nothing outside that's going to tip them off to when the 70th week is going to happen. That's his point. So let me ask you, is it likely then that the rapture is going to occur after seven years of all of the signs that Jesus gives you in the Olivet Discourse or in the book of Revelation that life is completely unnormal? Anybody seen uh, locusts or you have uh, demonic beings come up, coming up out of the abyss lately? No, that doesn't happen. That's not life as it always is. So that's my point is it was really odd to say that the rapture can happen after all those things have occurred. Now, let's talk about the mid-trib and the pre-wrath view. Mid-trib says, and one of the major proponents of this view is a man named Gleason Archer. He writes a dynamite commentary by and large, on the book of Daniel. Very good scholar. I would just disagree with him here. But he believes that the rapture occurs at the midpoint. Pre-wrath is a somewhat new view. Has anybody heard of that view? I know Bob and some others have. Good. Well, the pre-wrath view was established by a man named Robert Van Campen. I think his first name is Robert. Well, he died at age 60. He had a bad heart. He was actually waiting for a heart transplant. And unfortunately, he was a wonderful brother, But he was the one who invented this view. Now, some of the pre-wrath scholars will reject that. They'll say, well, no, this view goes back to antiquity. Whatever. The point is, is it biblical? Well, let me explain what it is. The pre-wrath view says that all of the wrath that you and I claim is the wrath of God in the beginning of the 70th week is actually just the wrath of man. So they would say that the wrath of God comes sometimes in the last three and a half years. Now, here's one of the problems with that. One of the claims they are making is that when the nations are engaged in warfare, for example, remember in the fourth seal, we read about this in Revelation 6-8, where you lose a quarter of the earth's population due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts? Well, the nations are warring, and they're creating all of this trouble. Well, the pre-wrathers will say, well, that's just the wrath of man or the wrath of Antichrist, but it's certainly not the wrath of God. The problem with that is God uses the nations as instruments of wrath. We see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 10. If you read Isaiah 10 very carefully, you'll see that God is using the Assyrians as vessels of his wrath to carry wrath upon his own people because they had broken covenant. When you get to Revelation chapter 17, God is very clear that he has given authority to the ten, remember the ten toes, the ten kings, who give their authority to the beast, and they're going to wage war against Jesus Christ, and God has given them that authority. So he's using their wrathful ways as his own wrath. Now, remember, as God gives them authority, he is allowing them to fulfill his decretive will, but they are violating his moral will. To reject the Lord Jesus Christ is to reject the moral will of God but it's fulfilling God's decretive will. Yeah, Brian. That view, pre-wrath, seems so absurd because <clears throat> they said who is worthy to open the seals, and, and that's when we see the lamb. They yeah. said, well, the lamb is worthy. And then, so the impetus is from God and yes. Jesus. So to say that it's man, it, it, it's crazy talk. Well said. You know, Brian, it's funny you mentioned that. That's a great point, and it's one that I didn't even put in my notes, but it's absolutely accurate. In other words, what Brian is saying is how can the pre-wrath movement say that all of the 
beginning judgments, like of the seal judgments in the beginning of the 70th week, if you look on the screen, how can they claim that that's just the wrath of man when in Revelation chapter 5, you have this throne room setting where the lamb is on the throne and he is the one who is worthy to open the seals. So where do the seal judgments ultimately come from? They come from the lamb. In fact, to add to that, Remember, we have a cycle of sevens. You have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, and then you have seven bowls. Every time you get to a seven, you have the storm theophany where there's a picture of heaven in the throne room. And the idea then is all the wrath emanates from the throne room of God. So I think it is very foolhardy to say, well, this is just the wrath of man. It's not the wrath of God. No, it's all the wrath of God. Absolutely. Now, a further evidence of that is, remember, when we talk about Revelation 6, 8, the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, that was the wrath of God explicitly stated in Ezekiel fourteen nineteen, when it came upon the people of Judah. In the last seven years that we're looking at, there's a reversal. The wrath that God used to send upon his people Israel for their breaking covenant, he now sends upon the Gentile world. That's what he does in the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, let me give you some other problems. Uh, Oh, by the way, is everyone clear on what the pre-wrath view is? Let me explain this a little further. What they believe is that sometime between the 6th and 7th seal, which is going to happen in the last three and a half years, you're going to have a rapture. Okay, so that's going to be sometime in the last three and a half years. And so their doctrine of imminence would say, you'll know the general time period of the 70th week, but you won't know necessarily when Jesus is going to return within the last three and a half years. Okay? Now, here's my rebuttal to that. When Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour, he's not referring to a 24-hour period or just a 60-minute period. He's talking about the hour of trial and the day of the Lord. They are synonymous. He's talking about the 70th week of Daniel. So when he says no one knows the day or the hour, he's talking about that time period of the 70th week of Daniel. No one has any idea when it's going to come. All right? So let's not claim to say, well, you know, we don't know the exact day, but we can know the season. That is not what's being taught in the Olivet Discourse. Okay, so first of all, wrath begins, we've proven, at the beginning of the 70th week. Now, another big problem that the pre-wrath movement has is they believe that the day of the Lord doesn't begin until between the 6th and the 7th seal. Okay, right in here. Does that make sense? Now, what would be the problem with that when we look at the wrath of God? Well, the wrath of God is poured out for at least three and a half years prior to that. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 5, please turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. And if I could have a reader read that. Very good. We'll have Brian read this For again. you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Okay, very good. And Brian, if you wouldn't mind, keep your Bible open um, and maybe turn it to Revelation 6. I might have you read another passage here. So notice two things. First of all, the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night meaning it comes suddenly, unexpectedly. But remember, the book of Revelation gives us all of the signs within the 70th week. 
So, by the way, does the Olivet Discourse. So if you're seeing all of the signs within the 70th week, and then all of a sudden the rapture happens about three-quarters of the way through, is that going to come as a surprise? No, you've been tipped off already. Why? Because you've seen all of the events that have been foretold about the events within the 70th week from both the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, but also Revelation chapter 6 all the way through 19. That's the whole point of Revelation. Revelation is describing this entire period. So how in any way could it come like a thief and taking you off guard? You've been completely prepared for it. Now, the other point is, notice he says it happens, Paul says, as Brian read, while they're saying peace and safety. Okay, while they're saying peace and safety, they're making an assertion that that's what they have. That is the desire of mankind, and they believe that they have peace and safety. Could the world be claiming that they have peace and safety here when they've had the worst warfare mankind has ever seen? So bad is it that Jesus says, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. In fact, by the fourth seal, you've lost a quarter of the earth's population, again, due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast. And what's more, could you read, uh, Brian, Revelation 6-4? Think about this, and before you read this, he's going to read Revelation 6-4. This is the second seal. It's the very beginning of the 70th week. Now, remember, the people are saying peace and safety when the day of the Lord breaks through. Just like the days of Noah, there was nothing to tip them off. Life was going on as it always had. They were given in marriage, they were eating and drinking. There was nothing to tip them off. That's why they could say peace and safety. But look, look at what happens at the second seal at the very beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So right there, the second seal, there was authority given by God to take peace from the earth. So there's no peace after this time period at the beginning of the 70th week. So do you see then that you can't be saying peace and safety here when peace and safety has been removed here? The only time you could be saying peace and safety in a legitimate way, claiming you have it, is if you're saying it here. And that's where the day of the Lord comes. And so that, to me, is a critical problem with the pre-wrath and the mid-trib view. I'm sorry, I get one... Uh, yeah, Eric. Yeah, I just wanted to get a recap. These uh, scripture citations that you just... Can you just mention those three, beginning with the, the First Thessalonians? Yep. Because uh, the, it went a little too fast for my note-taking. No, that's okay. First Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. First Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. And that's where Paul takes 10 terms right from the Olivet Discourse as he's talking about the day of the Lord. Now, what's interesting also about that 1 Thessalonians 5 is remember it, it comes on the heels of obviously 1 Thessalonians 4. What's the final topic at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4? The rapture. So think about 1 Thessalonians 4, the end of it is about the rapture. The beginning of 1 Thessalonians 5 is about what? The day of the Lord. It comes like a thief in the night. So it's the same order that we have here. That, that's, that's my claim. And yep. then the next one was, it was in Revelation. I'm sorry, it was Revelation 6-4. And that was the second seal. And my, the significance of that when you're debating or if you're thinking about it in your own mind, if what view of the rapture you hold to, is that's the beginning of the 70th week. If peace is removed at that point, how could be people 
be saying peace and safety later on. Yeah. Was there, was there a, a citation to just before Revelation 6-4? I'm, I'm there was to another one we talked about, the fourth seal, which is Revelation 6-8. 6, 6-8, 6, okay. Yep, and that's where you have those four items that take away uh, a quarter of the Earth's population right. end up dying because of it. That sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast. And by the way, the way those four work, think about the first one is sword. That's warfare between human beings. Well, because the warfare is going to be so bad, the order of society breaks down. Therefore, you have famine. People won't be able to feed themselves. So you have sword, famine. Then you have pestilence, which is disease because people are so weakened because of the famine. And then it gets so bad that you have wild beasts. Wild beasts will be carrying people away. Right now, you and I, by and large, as human beings, have dominion over them. But it's a complete breakdown of the dominion mandate because society is so broken. Remember, in society today, a lot of people want to get away to the wilderness, right? We always say, let's get away to the wilderness. Well, God created us to be a people of community, and I don't like to use that term in some communist sense, but in the sense that we really belong with one another. The Israelites were city dwellers. Where did the scapegoat go? Where did they send that away? Did they send that to the temple? Did they send it to the city? They send it to the wilderness where it belongs, the removal of sin. Okay, so the point is this, there's going to be a breakdown because of this warfare. Think about how bad it's going to be. You'll be living in that day, and all of a sudden a five-year-old, I'm just hypothetically thinking of this, will be dragged away by a wolf. That's how bad it is, where human beings are going to be pillaged by wild bees. That's the breakdown that we're going to see. That's how, so that's why this is unlike anything that the world has ever seen. By the way, I've mentioned this before. World War II, we lost 3% of the world's population. 3%. That was bad. The worst war that the world has ever seen. At the fourth seal, you're going to lose a quarter of the earth. Eight times worse than what we saw in World War II. I think World War II was bad enough. I don't want to see any more. So that's how bad the fourth seal is. How could anybody be saying peace and safety after that's occurred, certainly you won't. So that's why I think it's so difficult to maintain a mid-trib or a pre-wrath view. I'm sorry, Eric, did you have anything else? Did, were those the passages you were thinking of? I just wanted to make sure because all this fits together, and yeah. it's kind of hard sometimes to take all the notes as quickly as we would like. Um, oh, and Peter, did you Yeah, have... good, very good. So I agree with that. I know your, your familiarity yeah. is great for you, but... Uh, for the average mind to take that in so sure, fast sure. is very hard. One thing, just a suggestion. Yeah. Like in the tribulation and these four different modes yep. indicated, could there be a pro and con list of verses that we might have? Yeah. That would yeah. Why don't help? I get a? Should I get a handout? I'll bring that next time. Would that if, help? If you could, I'm not trying to create yeah, no, work for you, but I got it. it. I can just. You're type so it right familiar out. with it, you and Brian. I know you. You got it. But no, no, no. That'd be for good. the I'll average bear. We're trying to play catch up. So. Yeah. No, that's very good. That's very good. I'll, I'll Thank be you. more than happy to do that. <clears throat> so that'll help everybody. Well, let's keep going through some other problems with this view. Eric, can I yeah. Quick? Yeah. I wanted to quick say that uh, I think a big problem, and we've gone over this numerous times throughout the years, is the different meaning of the you of the uh, term "day of the Lord." Yeah. So when people can, key, if they look at the day of the Lord, could also mean that whole seven-year period. Then it could also mean the day 
of the big wrath at the end just prior to the millennial kingdom. So yeah. there's there's different meanings for that word, and I think people get off track yeah. uh, by that. And, and one more thing I want to say is yeah. uh, if people ever saw that movie, uh, left behind. I, I disagreed with a lot of stuff that happened yeah. in that movie. But one thing I can agree with is if there was somebody, a loved one that you had that was left behind and you had told them about this, yeah. that person would be able to sit down and open up the book of Revelation and follow step by step by step by step of what was going to actually happen because they actually did that in the movie. So that was something that was a, a truism. Absolutely. In, in fact, Brian, remember... Jesus says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. He says that in Matthew 24, 15. So think about it. He's telling people who are alive, who will be believers, when they see those events, they are to react in a certain way. So how could it come like a thief in the night if you have all those things to tip you off? Absolutely. Now, let me give you another fatal flaw of the pre-wrath view. Another fatal flaw is what they claim is the reason why this time period is unknowable to know when Christ comes, is they claim that it's going to be cut short. Remember Jesus says, in fact, turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, 21 through 22. Let's just read that. In fact, I'll, maybe I'll pull my Bible open here. I don't have it in my notes. While you're looking that up, um, just yeah. for your information, Eric and I have been doing radio on this Week yes. after week after week. And that's kind of, he just, verse after verse after verse. We've had and a lot of fun. We're going that. through Matthew 24. Yeah, that's okay. right. And uh, it's just starting to be podcast on CICministry.org for our podcast. And uh, Jessica is making that into YouTube and throwing verses up there so you can see it while we're talking. Yeah. And... I just started asking Harry questions, and he didn't have to even get a Bible out. Well, you, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's very, very interesting. But I think you may want to sign up for that podcast or to look at the YouTube of it if you haven't done so. If you want to learn more about this, because we go through Matthew yeah. twenty-four verse by verse, yeah, and we're going to go through the whole chapter. We're, we're almost done, actually. Right, right. and. Point out the structure of Matthew 24, how people misunderstand it, um, how it relates to Revelation and Old Testament prophecy. And we give really strong reasons why we should believe in literal future Bible prophecy. Amen. And uh, I found some more that we'll, if we record this week, I found some, yeah. another reason I want us to go over yeah, Tuesday. Amen. But, um, Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled literally during the first advent. And I can give evidence that Matthew wants us to take future prophecy just as literal. Yeah, amen. Because he uses the same terms throughout Matthew in order that it might be fulfilled. Amen. You know, um, what was so exciting to work on this with Bob is back in 2007, the breakthrough that we had was on the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse has been very much misunderstood. Let me just give you the basic reason why. Most people, when they read the Olivet Discourse, they look for all these signs, and they believe these signs are occurring within the church age. They're happening here and now. But when you understand that all of the signs that Jesus gives you are occurring within the 70th week, 
It's a huge breakthrough. And what Bob and I have proven exegetically is that there is grammatical discourse markers that prove this. Okay, not only does the context of the reading, but there's a peri day, a grammatical discourse marker in Matthew 24, 36. Once we had that breakthrough, it really opened up eschatology for us. And so that's why we're so excited. One of the things that Bob and I have always reacted against is post-modernity, where people say, well, who can really know? And one of the frustrations that I've had over years, over the years, is that a lot of times when it comes to a lot of the Bible, people will be very confident But when it came to eschatology, they kind of throw their hands in the air and they say, well, that's just your interpretation. And there's so many different interpretations. As if all of a sudden when it comes to the end, we can't understand it. All of a sudden when it comes to eschatology, we no longer have the perspicuity of Scripture, which is the clarity of Scripture. No, the end is very clear. And so that's what we're trying to show. So with that, in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, notice Jesus says something very important about how bad a time period this is. By the way, I'm getting farsighted, so sometimes I have to pause for a bit and kind of track in. So I'm going to need some cheaters. Yeah, I'm going to get some cheaters pretty soon. But uh, here I'm, I'm starting to track in on my text. Verses 21 through 22 of Matthew 24, Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. So stop there, right there. That's the worst time period ever. Jesus is saying it's the worst. And I always like to make this joke, you can't have the worstest. You only have one worst time period, right? The book of Revelation is describing the worst time period. You have demon hordes that come out of the abyss on the ninth trump, or the, the Revelation chapter 9, which is the fifth trumpet. Has anybody ever seen a bunch of demonic beings uh, that 200 million strong uh, murder people? Well, that's never occurred during the church age. That's part of the worst time period ever. So I want you to think about, he's describing the 70th week of Daniel. That's when the worst time period is. It's not during the church age. So then notice what he says in verse 22. Now, this is what the pre-wrath builds their view on. Verse 22, it says, If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, it will be cut short. So here's how the pre-wrath takes that. They say, okay, the Great Tribulation is going to be three and a half years, but it's going to be cut short, and therefore it's going to be less than three and a half years. Are you with me? That's what they're trying to claim. But here's the problem with that. Jesus, by saying that it's going to be cut short, doesn't say that it's going to be less than seven total or less than three and a half for your last three and a half years. They're merely assuming that. Are you with me? So in other words, I think Jesus is simply saying it would have gone longer had God not cut it short to the seven years and the last three and a half, which is the Great Tribulation. They're merely assuming that it's going to be less than the last three and a half years. Now, why is it wrong to assume that? Well, the book of Matthew was probably written either in the 50s or 60s, early 60s A.D. The book of Revelation was written in 95 A.D., many years later. Well, you would think if John was going to say, you know what, this Antichrist isn't going to reign over Jerusalem and Israel for three and a half years, it's going to be a little bit less than that, he would have revealed that to us. But turn your Bibles to Revelation 13, 5, and let's see how long this Antichrist reigns for. And what I'm going to be saying is either John is wrong or the pre-wrath movement is wrong. But I'm going with John, who's inspired by the Spirit. Revelation 13, 5. 
Now, this is the Antichrist. Remember, he's the beast. And it says, The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority, notice for how long? For 42 months. So that's the last three and a half years that you have from the midpoint to here. So John is saying it's going to last for three and a half years, the, the Great Tribulation. Jesus is saying it's going to last that long. But the pre-rathers say, no, being cut short means it's not going to last that long. Are you with me? So my point is this. I think the cutting short was to that last three and a half years. In other words, it's not going to be less than that. So the whole movement falls. Here's why. What they believe is sometime in the last three and a half years, it's cut short by the imminent return of Christ, their, their doctrine of imminence. And then the rapture happens and the people are brought out. The problem with that is the Bible is very clear that the Antichrist is given authority to rule over this entire time period. So again, either pre-wrath is right or John is right in Revelation 13.5. Yes. Well, then we have yet another issue then because the seven years is based on Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. Exactly. Okay. He'd be wrong too. Well, so then... If the timing that you've preached on, and I believe it's correct, yeah. brings the end of the 69th week right up to Jesus coming into Jerusalem, right? Right. right. Well, that was exact. Exactly. Right to the day. Okay. Yeah. Amen. And so if that's how the 69 weeks worked, exactly. Well, so the 70th, is somehow the rules changed? <laughs> Great point. Yeah, yes. so... The 70th is going to be exactly the seven years. Exactly. That's, uh, I yeah, think we amen. need to be consistent. Matthew is consistent. Amen. And we need to get it right. Amen. Yeah, well said, Bob. So Bob is pointing out, look, the first 69 weeks, remember there's the 483 years that Daniel gives us? Well, that ended up being 33 A.D., the very day that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, which is the 10th day of Nisan, that's Lamb Selection Day. The very day that Christ came in was the end that's in, into Jerusalem and his triumphal entry was the very day prophesied in Daniel 9. Now, as he comes in, it's not just on any day. Remember, it's the 10th day of Nisan. What happened in that day? Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, the Israelites on the 10th day of the month were all to choose what? A lamb. It was Lamb Selection Day. So Jesus comes in on the appointed time by the prophet Daniel, and he comes riding into Jerusalem, not just on any day, but on the day for hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel had to select their lamb without blemish. And it's as if Jesus is saying, here I am. He's the lamb without blemish. Isn't John the Baptist? He's the one who says, here, the lamb of God. He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus comes riding in that very day. Now, does all of Israel trust in him? No, in fact, that's why Jesus weeps over them. And you can read about that in Luke 19. Yes, uh, Eric. Yeah, and another thing in the, in the support of the pre-tribulation wrath. Yeah. In, in these verses in Matthew, Matthew 22, which we just read. Yeah. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, yeah. those days will be cut short. Now, my understanding, okay, is that that's the elect among the Jewish remnant. In other words, see, we believers, um, we are among the elect, but we'll be gone, <laughs> okay? Yeah. So the, the tribulation starts, that seven-year period starts. There will still be unbelieving Jewish people 
and I think unbelieving other people, but that tribulation period will be cut short because there will be elect, there will still be some elect that will be saved during that time, even though we will be gone. Is that correct? Amen. Exactly right. And not to limit it just to Jews, I think you're right. The Olivet Discourse is Israel-centric. The first 69 weeks of Daniel was about Israel. The whole 70th week, 70 weeks prophecy is all about Israel. You can read about that in Daniel 9. Uh, that's very explicit. However, when it comes to the elect, we have to remember that there are Gentiles involved with that as well. But you're right. There's going to be people who come to faith in Christ during that seven years. And for their sake, this time period is going to be limited. We're already gone. We're raptured and with the Lord in a resurrected body. So we're not going to suffer at all. But there are going to be people who come to Christ during that time period, and they will be suffering at the hands of the unregenerate. Yes. Okay, so then just, you know, when I look at the four that we have up there, and post-tribulation has a quite a track record already because it's since, you know, the turn of the century, 1900s, whatever. Yeah. And we can see how far they slid where they basically jettisoned the cross through social programs, et cetera, and now man does salvation. And so, you know, because we do know pre-wrath, I'm assuming you called them brothers, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if I'm saved... We have a lot in common, yeah. Right, and so if I am saved, you know, truly by grace through the cross, and I find myself in one of these churches down the road, and, um, you know, pre-wrath isn't going to necessarily, at least we don't think it's going to take you into some aberrant teaching, but like post-tribulation can it can leave the cross to take you into social programs where basically the state and mankind can save you. Yeah, and Luann, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily inherent to post-tribulationalism, but I would say it, it's inherent to more of a post-millennialism. Post-millennialism is a little different, and I'll be talking about that on the next slide, ironically, but let's remember post-millennial, when we're talking about the millennial view, pre-millennial says Jesus Christ comes to set up the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Amillennialism says there is no thousand years. Postmillennialism says we, through our efforts, Christianize the planet so that when Jesus, after that a thousand years, he just takes the keys of the kingdom that you and I have basically made through the, the efforts of evangelism, our own works, etc. So you're right. I think postmillennialism is an attack on the cross, the sufficiency of Christ, God's grace, all of that. But I don't think post-tribulationalism necessarily is. Is that, is that a helpful clarification? Okay. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yes. There's something really funny about the idea that, um, you know, that we're going to, you know, basically socialize the concept of Christianity, everybody's getting yeah. ready for him. Because uh, it also talks about that when Jesus comes, he's going to reign with an iron <laughs> rod. Yes. And, and so what I get out of that is that it's actually people that are forced into, you know, following the law. Similar to the Pharisees, they were following the law, but they had yeah. neglected the relationship. Uh, they neglected the greater things, Christ, essentially. Right. And so the reign, uh, the world will be in subjection to the authority of God, but not necessarily in a uh, means of, um, <laughs> I guess, rejoicing. Yes. And, and it's instantaneous when that thousand-year reign is up that they, they all come up against... Well said. The city during the millennium. Exa- during the millennial kingdom, you're exactly right. Let's look at a let's look at a passage. That, I'm sorry. What's your name? I, 
I'm sorry, I'm new. I'm Robin. Robin. I'm from Washington. Nice to meet you. Nice to have you here. Thanks. Great comment. I want to just show that he's exactly right. During the Millennial Kingdom, you're going to have a lot of unbelievers that are with Christ, but they're not going to worship him willingly always. And there's evidence of that. One passage that always sticks in my mind, there's many that stick out, but one is in Zechariah 14. If you please turn your Bibles there, and I'll have to turn to it myself to get to the exact reference here. But Zechariah 14... Yeah, start in verse 16, Zechariah 14, verse 16. And by the way, this is one of the evidences for the millennial kingdom. And I'll explain why. Notice it says in verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all of the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the the feast of booths. So, So stop there real quickly. The reason why you have survivors, remember, there's this last battle that starts at Armageddon, culminates at Jerusalem. It's this last battle that surrounds Jerusalem where Jesus Christ intervenes at the end of the 70th week. So if you're looking at the timeline, it happens right here. But there's going to be survivors, and of the survivors, they're going to go up and try to, they're not try, they're going to worship the Lord, and they're going to keep the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. But notice what it goes on to say, it qualifies it. It says, and if any of the families of the earth, this is verse 17, do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So stop right there. The Lord, if you don't come up willingly, the Lord doesn't send rain on your land. So just as Robin's pointing out, well, wait a minute. Believers are going to want to go up and worship him. So this is a reference to unbelievers. Now, why is this, by the way, proof of the millennial kingdom? Because in the eternal states, all unbelievers are where? They're in the lake of fire. So there's, no, there's not going to be a single unbeliever that's ever going to even have an opportunity to go worship the Lord. They're all in the lake of fire. And so it'll be only for believers. So this has to... Obviously, are the nations right now being forced to go up to serve Yahweh in Jerusalem? So it can't be the church age. And it can't be the eternal states. Well, without a millennial kingdom, you can't explain this text. So thanks for bringing this up, Robin. You're exactly right. Um, this is, I think, proof of the, the millennial kingdom. Yeah, Norm. So who are the initial inhabitants in the millennium? If we look in Matthew 25, Christ returns and he separates the sheep from the goats. Yeah. And the sheep go to be with him, with the Lord. So yep. believers don't, I mean, talking humans now. They yeah. don't go into the kingdom. And unbelievers go into perdition or hell. Who's left to be the initial human inhabitants yeah. of the millennium? Yeah, well said, Norm. That's a very good challenge. In fact, that's a, a viewpoint that a man, he, he holds the same views in eschatology that we do. His name is uh, Freeberg. And he writes a view. There's a book put out by Zondervan, Four Views on the Timing of the Rapture. And then there's another one on the millennial kingdom. And what he claims is there, there, can't be believe, un, excuse me, there cannot be unbelievers who go into the millennial kingdom because of Matthew 25. Um, in fact, let's, why don't we just turn our Bibles there so we see what Norm is talking about, because I think it's an important thing to refer to. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats judgment.
Look at verse 31. This is Matthew 25, verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to talk about, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, stop right there. A lot of people in the social gospel, I don't mean to detract from your point, but they'll say, oh, look at all the good works. This is why we should do the social gospel. But notice what Jesus says. Verse 37, he says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or the thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked or clothe you? Verse 39, it says, And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Verse 40, Jesus says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you do it to the one of these least of my brothers, you did it to me. So when you do it to the least of Jesus' brothers, who are his brothers? Well, right, they're believers, right? So this isn't for the unregenerate. The unregenerate unbelievers are never called Jesus' brothers. It's those who trust in Christ. Okay, so right away that tampers the social gospel. Jesus isn't saying it's how you treat those in the world, but those how you treat your brothers and sisters. Okay, but here's the point. It goes on to say in verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So let's just stop there. What Norm is saying is there's two groups. You have the sheep and the goats, and the sheep enter into Christ's kingdom, and the goats don't. So if the goats don't enter into the kingdom, how can we see evidence that there's unbelievers in the millennial kingdom? The reason why, Norm, is here in Matthew 25, we're being given a summary, not the exact details of the millennial kingdom, but what we're given is a summary of the final judgment. Now, here's why I say that. Notice in Matthew 25, 41, what he says to those on his left, the goats. He says, depart from me, curse it into the eternal fire. When does the eternal fire come? It's at the end of the millennial kingdom. In fact, let me just go to my next slide real quick. Let me just put this up here. We won't get into this probably now. So we have our tribulation period, seven years. Jesus returns and sets up his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And remember in Revelation chapter 20, you have this white throne judgment that occurs right here. And it's at this time, anyone whose names was not found in the Lamb's book of life, remember in Revelation 20, is thrown where? Into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire sentencing, which is eternal, happens here that Jesus is describing in Matthew 25, 41. It doesn't happen here. So what we can infer from that then, and other passages like Zechariah 14, where you clearly have unbelievers who are going to be forced to go up, is that Jesus is giving us a summary statement in Matthew 25. It's like when Bob and I preach the gospel, and at the end sometimes when we preach the gospel, we'll say Jesus is coming to bring a glorious kingdom to those who trust in him, 
but judgment upon those who reject him. We're not breaking it out into all of these details. There's a lot of details in there. We're giving you a summary statement. In the same way Jesus is doing that, and proof of that is he's talking about the eternal lake of fire in Matthew 25, 41. Well, that doesn't occur until after the millennial kingdom as evidenced by Revelation chapter 20. So does that, does that help? Yeah. Okay. Is, is everybody clear on that? Because I, I know a lot of people have had that question. Yeah, Bob. We talked about that the other day. We were recording radio. Yeah. What helps, under, helps us understand is really the first advent was that way too. Yeah, very good In point. other words, if you look at everything that happened at the first coming of Christ, yeah. uh, it's a singular event, the first advent, but it's a complex event. Yes. So it includes many things prophesied in the Old Testament that didn't happen just on one day. So you have the virgin birth. Yeah. Okay. You have uh, Jesus... Uh, sinless life you have his teachings you have places he went Matthew cites Jesus as from Nazareth out of Egypt I've called my son Right, right. that was fulfilled Matthew said so here we have these details during his life and then you have that specific detail of he's the lamb the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world you have the prediction in Matthew or Isaiah 53 that he would die, suffer, cursed is he who hangs on a tree, and then his resurrection. So it didn't all happen in one day. Right. Well said. But yet it was the first advent, so it was a complex event. The second advent is going to be a complex event. Yes, yeah, Bob, that's so important. So what Bob is saying, and it's exactly right, the parousia, which is the technical term for the coming of the Lord, isn't, we always think of it as a 24-hour day. We should conceive it as the 70th week of Daniel. That's the parousia. Now, proof of that is in Matthew 24, 37, Jesus says that his coming, his parousia, is like the days of the Son of Man. If you jot down Luke 17, 26, jot that verse down, you see a parallel to it. It's parallel in the Greek, but there's just a change of vocabulary. Jesus says, as it was in the days of uh, Noah, so it will be in the days, plural, of the Son of Man. So notice, synonymously, Jesus can use the days, plural, of the Son of Man with the term parousia, which is the term for his coming. The reason that's significant is Jesus' coming is a plurality of days, a complex event just as Bob said. So we shouldn't think of it as a one-day event at the beginning of the 70th week or a one-day event at the end. We should conceive of the parousia as the entirety of the 70th week. That's how significant the 70th week of Daniel is. It begins with Christ coming for the church. It ends with Christ coming with the church. It's bracketed by that. But that's the parousia as conceived in Scripture. Yeah, Norm. Uh, Just one more comment. Wouldn't uh, what we see in the Garden of Eden where God said, in the day that you sin, you will die, but they didn't die physically that day, so that's kind of a summary day. Yeah, very good, very good. Now, you're you're exactly right. Let's just nuance it a little bit. In the day that you'll eat of it, you'll die. And there's two aspects of death. Death is always separation. You're exactly right. The physical death doesn't occur right away, but immediately they have spiritual death. There is a separation, so so much so that there has to be a covering, this first uh, foreshadowing of an atonement, 
where you have the covering of the animal skin, because remember, they're found naked. But then they're also cast out of the Garden of Eden. And so we see this idea that sin causes separation, and death is really separation. Spiritual is separation from God, and then physical is separation of body and soul. So you're absolutely right. The physical death was not incurred immediately, but the spiritual death was. So you're right. That in itself is a complex event, even though just the term die or death is used. So very good. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah, Brian. In the millennial kingdom, uh, people, whether uh, in their physical bodies, whether saved or not saved, are still going to be repopulating. Yeah. And uh, the children born are still going to be born in sin. So everybody that's repopulating the millennial kingdom is then going to, uh, you know, if they have people that are witnessing to them and they, yeah. they, they, you know, they could be of the elect and the, it would be just like it is now with the repopulation and they'll still be born in sin, even though yeah. it's the millennial kingdom. A- absolutely. And a lot of people just from psychology, they reject that right. because it doesn't seem right that you would have unregenerate people living in the presence of God as Christ reigns. So because it seems strange to them, they say, well, that can't be biblical. But let's remember, you also had the Lord walking in the cool of the day in the garden. And after the fall, he still interacted with them, didn't he? So I think you're exactly right. In fact, we see evidence of that in Revelation chapter 20. In fact, let's just read that because I think it's an important point. Revelation chapter 20, you'll see a final rebellion after this thousand-year millennial kingdom. So the question is, well, why, if everyone is saved who's part of that kingdom, why would anyone rebel? Well, just as Brian's pointing out, not everyone is saved living in the millennial kingdom. And this is where you see, it says Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. Notice it says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. To gather them to battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. This is a pretty lopsided battle. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, what happens right after that is the white throne judgment. And again, that white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. So he's exactly right. You're going to have unbelievers living during the millennial kingdom. And that's why we have them forced up, as Robin was pointed out. They're going to have to go up to the Feast of Booths. And if they don't, there's going to be no rain sent upon their land. But they're going to be so seething at the end of this 1,000 years, apparently, and incited by Satan that they're going to rebel against Messiah once more. And that's going to forever show us that the problem of mankind is not the environment, it's the sin nature within. For how great of an environment did they have? They had the millennial kingdom, they were with Christ, just as Adam and Eve had the garden and were with Christ, as it were, in the garden. They had perfection, so the problem was us, not our environment. Yes, I saw Robin, and then we got one. Oh, I'm sorry, Ryan, we'll go to Robin. Yeah, going back to Matthew 25, 
It talks about the believers inheriting the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Yes. And I guess that seems to tie fairly well with Revelation 21 with the kingdom and Israel that comes down from heaven, something created by God. Yes, absolutely. Maybe a tie there. And then also, since it's prepared for you, that seems something that God did, not something that man has done. Oh, good as well, point, kind of Ryan. To what we've talked about earlier. Very good. Yes, very good reading. Yeah, that's that's certainly a refutation of any form of postmillennialism. Even though we're saying this happens after the end of the thousand years, and I think you're right. I think that's a final summary statement. Jesus is giving you the bottom line. He's simply saying there's going to be those who enter into his kingdom eternally, New Jerusalem, Revelation 21. There are going to be those who are sentenced to the lake of fire, the unregenerate. Revelation chapter 20, as we just were alluding to. So good reading. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, Robin. Well, I, I think one of the things that really stuck out to me uh, the most recent time I've gone through Revelation is yeah. I think my concept of Revelation was all about the judgment of God, and clearly that's a lot of it. Sure. Um, but then I started wondering, why is it 22 chapters long? Yeah. And, you know, in relation to, um, you know, that millennial reign and, and unbelievers being there, there's a scripture that comes to my mind, and it's like, it's not as though God were slow, but that he was gracious, Patient, yes. waiting for the fulfillment of time, and, and so that people would be saved, you know. And Absolutely. John, um, in chapter 1, if I can find it, um, I think this is one of the things that really it sticks out to me because if, if we're talking about, you know, the iron rod, yeah. so we have that and Romans describes the, the law as the thing that actually brings death to us sure, because it reveals who we are. But, um, so Jesus reigning for a thousand years is an interesting concept because it says in verse um, 16 of chapter one, for of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And it, to me, I look at all the plagues and I'm saying, well, okay, a quarter of the population is a lot, but it's not the whole population. Right. You know, I look at the, the things that happen. I see the grace of God in that he should have just been like, it's over. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if it was me and, and yeah. my son had been crucified yeah. for these people, right. it would be over. Absolutely. But actually, I see the grace of God in the book of Revelation greater than any other book. Amen. You're so right. Even during his wrath, as it's being poured out, the gospel is preached to all the nations. He uses even an angel. He uses the two eyewitnesses in Revelation 11. The gospel keeps going out. He's even patient then. And what's interesting, as his judgments come, Bob mentioned this in our radio session last time, you see this horrific judgment that comes upon them. They even acknowledge at the fifth seal that this is the wrath of God. The unregenerate know that it's the wrath of God. They say the wrath has come. Who, you know, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And yet it says in many places, and they still do not repent. And that shows the hardness of heart. So it's not God's lack of grace, but it's our, our hardness of heart that's the issue. And you see that all the way through Revelation. So very, very astute point. Yeah, thank you. Very good. Yeah, so I'm sorry, I guess we're out of time, but I tell you what, here's where we're going to go. We're basically, I showed you a lot of the issues with the pre-wrath movement. And what I wanted to show you then is that I think the pre-trib rapture view really has the most going for it. It's the least problematic. I've never come up with anything that I couldn't answer biblically, at least in, to my own satisfaction. So anyway, to me, that's the best view. Now, next time we talk, I want to talk about the various millennial views. We'll talk a little bit about that, and we'll just kind of put up a whole 
timeline. We'll just lay that out. Very, I want to do it fairly quickly. And then we just have some slides of the last verses of Revelation. And you know what's very interesting? Three times in Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. He reiterates it three times. Remember, how did the whole book of Revelation begin? Revelation 1, verses 1 through 2, talks about Jesus coming quickly. Now, the term quickly doesn't mean that he's coming fast when he comes. It's the idea of imminence. Remember I talked about that adverb, tacos? Tacos has to do with the idea of soon. It's at hand. So Revelation 1, Jesus' return is at hand. Revelation 22, he reiterates it three times. It is at hand. The whole message of the book of Revelation can be encapsulated that this glorious kingdom that he's bringing, his salvation and also his judgment, it's at hand. There's nothing to tip you off. Just like the days of Noah, the only thing we have, just as they had, was the preaching of God's word. So today is the day to trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, flee from the wrath to come, and become a participant of his glorious kingdom. That's the message that we're going to see even in the end verses. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, Eric, could you also put the verses, supporting verses for these different views? Yes, and I'll I'll type that up. Um, The only trouble that I end up having is it's so hard to fit it all on the screen, but I will do that on a, a sheet. And, I'll, and it may be multiple, <laughs> but I'll get sheets out. And is that okay, Christy? I, I'm talking big now, but Christy is the one who has to print it. So I will, print, I will type it up and then get it out to her, and we'll get it to you. So yes, Eric. I just can't resist saying this because, you know, just this, this class illustrates it. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, I think Revelation is the only uh, uh, book of the New Testament that promises a blessing. We're, we're promised that we'll be blessed. And you can see it because when you read Revelation, there's so much reference to Old Testament prophecy all throughout the Bible. In other words, if you decide you're going to take on the book of Revelation and understand it, you will be blessed because you will be really just, you will be abiding in God's word over and over and over again in order to get the comprehensive understanding of it. Amen, Eric. It's a summary of the whole thing. What's very interesting is we, I hope we have time to get to it next week. In the last verses, remember Jesus warns about adding or subtracting from this book. And you might ask yourself, well, why does he say that just about the book of Revelation? We shouldn't be adding or subtracting to any of the books. Well, it's very interesting is God says the same thing through Moses, that if anyone adds to the law in Deuteronomy 4, that if they add or subtract from the law, they're not going to have, they're going to have wrath. They're not going to have salvation. So it's very interesting to me is the beginning of the law at the beginning of our canon and the book of Revelation at the very end, it's bracketed by this warning not to add or subtract. I think it's deliberate. The law warns at the beginning and the book of Revelation warns at the end that if anyone adds or subtracts to God's divine revelation, it's going to be required of them. And I hope the Mormons hear that. I hope those who add and subtract to the word, it's very important too for those who claim to be modern-day apostles and prophets, uh, we have a faith once and for all handed down to the saints, Jude 3. And we see evidence of that even in the book of Revelation. So I hope we get to that next time, but very good. Would you mind praying for us on the way out here? Lord, uh, we just thank you, Lord, that we have the freedom and that we have, uh, we have people throughout our congregation, throughout our group, not only our teachers, but all of our faithful Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for each other, Lord. We ask that you would, uh, would just help us to have insight to see your full counsel 
we know that you love us and that that's your design for us is that we would understand and have benefit of all of your word. We thank you for your word and we thank you for each other. And most of all, we thank you for your, your salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Eric. God bless all of you.